0: We Peace, the Gift of God's Love. I appreciate that beautiful hymn Bobby has led us in, and it is most appropriate in light of what we are studying as we finish out this calendar year. And that study involves the fact that the New Testament Christian never stops growing. We've been in a series of lessons on the New Testament Christian uh, on Sunday mornings recently based on the theme of the lectureship at the Memphis School of Preaching last March and looking at various aspects concerning the new testament christian but on this one we're spending more time and concluding the series as we look at various aspects in which uh, or qualities in which the christian should never stop growing and as the basis for this concluding part of our series we're looking at 1 peter uh, chapter 2 particularly the key verses there where Peter in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2 says, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And we're staying right here in 1 Peter and going back and looking through this first epistle of Peter's to see 12 Twelve wonderful, beautiful qualities in which the Christian should be growing. And as we began this part of our series last time, we looked at grace as well as some fundamental principles about growth. That basic fundamental principle is indeed just what the title of this uh, part of our series suggests. The New Testament Christian never stops growing. There is never a point in My life as a child of God, where I can say I have attained, I am leveling off now, I've reached uh, the pinnacle of every beautiful Christian quality, every Christian grace, there's no more room for growth. That will never occur with the right-thinking child of God. It may occur with the wrong-thinking child of God, the one who's not thinking as he or she should, but it will never occur with the right-thinking child of God because our determination must be that we are growing in every christian grace and indeed that's what the new testament abundantly teaches and as we think of christian graces a brief review of the first of these qualities that we've looked at in first peter as we go back to first peter chapter 1 and verse 2 where peter's greeting is that which is so often characteristic of his fellow apostle paul grace to you and peace Grace to you and peace be multiplied. And we pointed out that indeed we are to grow in grace because in Peter's second epistle at chapter 3 and verse 18, he makes it abundantly clear that that is the case when he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we pointed out last time, grace is favor, specifically the unmerited favor of God. And indeed, we cannot merit the grace of God. God extends it to us through his mercy, which is defined quite often as grace in action, mercy is. But we also saw that grace is not extended by God unconditionally. As we looked at the first instance of the word's use in Genesis 6, verse 8, in reference to Noah, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But why? Upon what basis did Noah... And those other seven precious souls, his family obtained grace when God was about to destroy the world through flood because of its great wickedness. The basis is seen in verse 9, following verse 8. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God, that is, he was faithful to God, thus God extended his grace. Was Noah a sinless individual? No, as we pointed out last time. But he was blameless before God, that is he lived in accordance with the will of God under that patriarchal dispensation, and thereby God was able to extend to Noah and his family that wonderful grace by which they were saved from the deluge. And so grace is not unconditional. Grace comes through through obedience to God's will, and that comes by faith, another of these qualities, the 12 that we'll be discussing in these last few lessons on this series on the New Testament Christian. But this morning we move to perhaps one of the most pleasant sounding words in all of the English language, if you think about it, peace. Peace. Peace just has a pleasant sound to it, doesn't it? A pleasant sound and a very pleasant connotation. Peace. And indeed the Bible has a great deal to say about peace. From Old Testament to New. Should we grow in peace? Well, apparently Peter, by inspiration, thought so. Grace to you and peace be what? Multiplied. That indicates uh, growth, doesn't it? We often sing another beautiful hymn, peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers peace within. And without the blood of Jesus, there is no peace within. As this song we have just sung expresses so beautifully and scripturally, as well but let's think about peace the word in the new testament the word in the new testament is irene if you know someone named irene then you know someone whose name is based upon the the new testament word for peace irene irene is the is the word for peace that is used throughout the new testament and obviously peace is defined in various ways in the world in which we live, and validly so, peace is secession from hostility and absence of war, something for which we regularly pray and for which we desperately long in a war-torn world even now in which we live. But the peace about which we will speak primarily and emphasize in in this uh, study as part of our study is not that cessation of hostility, not even that, uh, that harmony uh, among members of a family sometimes because that is not the peace that Jesus came to bring. In fact, in Matthew 10:34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now in John 14:27, to the apostles, he said, My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Is that a contradiction? Well, someone who's not fair with Scripture might try to make it a contradiction and say, well, you see, we have Jesus, whom you claim to be Lord in Christ, contradicting himself, saying, I came to give you peace. I did not come to give you peace. Well, obviously, the context determines here and clearly points out that when Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty four, as it's recorded, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What did he go on to say? He went on to say that the peace that I bring, as he spoke of it in John fourteen twenty seven, that peace within, that peace with God, that peace that comes through the reconciliation of the cross, that peace will produce within your heart a peace that is unsurpassed. But because you have that peace, because of your obedience to my word, and others will not experience that peace because they refuse to obey my word, there will be a division or a lack of peace between those who obey and those who do not obey. That's the context of Matthew 10, 34. Because you see, when you read on, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. And then Jesus went on to say in that context, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, For those who will embrace the peace that I bring through my sacrifice you will have a peace that is unsurpassed but you will at times be in conflict with others who do not enjoy that peace and many times that conflict will exist even in households among family members well should we sacrifice the peace that we have in Christ in order to maintain peace in the household? The answer is obviously no. Certainly we need to pray that we can have that kind of peace and that kind of harmony even within households, but the peace that surpasses understanding must take precedence over the cessation of hostility even within families because Jesus came to bring us into the way of peace. You remember in the account of the birth of Christ in Luke's uh, chapter, in Luke chapter 2, do not be afraid, the angel uh, said here to the shepherds, do not be afraid. He said, uh, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came into this world to bring peace, the peace within to those who will be obedient to his will. But even among those who have that peace, they will have to contend with others who have not embraced it through obedience to the gospel. Peace is a beautiful word. And the word here simply indicates a tranquility of the soul. A tranquility of the soul that is to guide and rule every aspect of, Of our lives and to keep that soul if you will tranquil and quiet and under control amid the turmoil and the passions that will tend to arise in our lives there's a passage on peace that addresses that very concept that I have just described look with me at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15 in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of God, the peace of God, that is the peace that God gives. How? Through obedience to his will and the reconciliation that comes through obedience to his will. As the same writer in the Ephesian letter points out, in verse 14 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, remember, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, have abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making what? Peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Peace through the reconciliation process in what? In one body. And the same writer makes that same point and emphasizes that same body in the passage we just noted in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body. There's that same one body, which is clearly the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he says, and be thankful. But the word I want us to concentrate on in Colossians 3.15 in relation to peace is the word rule. And it's so vitally important in conjunction with the word peace. Because that word rule, that word rule indicates, indicates an umpire. An umpire, not in the game of baseball, but an umpire in the Olympic games or other similar games in Paul's Time in New Testament time. And that umpire was one who sat as a judge over the various uh, games and uh, kept things in order and under control and then gave out the various awards to the winners of the games. Now, that's the word that Paul chooses to use by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in relation to the work that peace is to accomplish in our hearts, our minds. It is to sit there as it were as an umpire, as a director, as one that directs every aspect of life, that keeps those passions under control that may arise in our lives, the turmoils, the challenges that come. There is a governing, there is a governing quality if you will, a ruling quality that is to keep on governing, and that's the tense here, keep on, keep on letting it rule, is the idea here. Let, keep on letting, it's a present imperative, keep on letting that peace be the umpire in your life. In other words, let it control every aspect. Don't let anything or anyone disturb that peace. That's how powerful it can be if you will grow in it to the point that you can honestly say and demonstrate that it has become the umpire in your life. And that no matter what happens, nothing can destroy that peace. Nothing can take away that peace because it rules rules every aspect of your life. Is it any wonder then that Peter said grace and peace be multiplied when Paul says let that peace be the umpire, the rule in your hearts? And then he adds to which you were called. You were called to what? Peace. You were not called to bickering and and biting and devouring as we studied this morning in class in the Galatian letter. If you bite and devour one another, Paul says, you'll be consumed of one another. You were called to peace in one body church let peace always be the umpire and it will be if we will grow in that quality. A couple of years ago I preached a lesson here on false peace and it might be worthwhile to just simply briefly remind ourselves that that peace has to be properly, properly based. It has to truly be the peace that Jesus Christ brings as he said to his apostles in 1st John or in John 14 27 my peace I give to you not as the world gives give I to you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid and think about that for a moment in relation to what we just looked at in Colossians 3 15, if peace is the umpire of the heart when Jesus says to his apostles let not your heart be troubled because my peace I give to you what is he saying he's saying the very same thing Paul was saying here. With my peace in your heart, your heart will not be troubled, nor will it be afraid. And you will serve God with that peace ruling in your heart, not out of fear, not out of dread or terror that you may have, uh, have messed up or done wrong. And Joel, Joel pointed this out so beautifully in his lesson Wednesday night on Blessed Assurance. But you will know that as you walk in the light, that peace rules in your heart. And you don't serve God out of fear, but out of deep gratitude and love for the Prince of Peace who has produced in your heart that beautiful, beautiful quality of peace. But you know that false prophets produce false peace. There are those who are living their lives today in this world, tragically, religiously, who believe they have peace. And they are perfectly content with where they are. What produced that? Well, one one producer is false prophets. They may produce false peace. Remember Jeremiah 6, 14? Jeremiah wrote, they have also healed the hurt of my people. God through the prophet says, they have also healed the hurt of my people. Listen to it. Slightly saying, peace, peace when there is no peace they've hurled they've heard they've healed the hurt of my people how slightly they've pacified them they've pacified my people by saying peace peace when there is no peace but the hurt is not healed the hurt is not healed and in Matthew chapter 7 15 through 20 we have proof provided that false prophets may be very persuasive in convincing people that they are at peace with God when in fact they're still in rebellion to His will. And we must never lose sight of that. And false prophets or false teachers themselves may be self deceived, believing with all of their heart that they are doing God's will because they've convinced themselves of it. And when we studied this false peace back when, we also saw that false promises produce false peace second Peter his second epistle at chapter 2 and verse 19 Peter wrote while they promised them liberty they themselves are slaves of corruption for by whom a person is overcome by him also he is brought into bondage and when you look at the entire second chapter of second Peter it deals with the false prophets and their promise of liberty however the promises produce a false peace that leads those who embrace them to eternal perdition. And the modern-day change agents who decry legalism, who denounce legalism, and who promise liberty, have deceived many in the Lord's Church. And what a tragedy that is. Their promises are pseudo-promises. And Peter in 2 Peter 2, 20-22 graphically describes the end of those who believe them. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them never to have known the ray of righteousness that having known it, to turn their back upon the holy commandment once delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turning to its own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. What a graphically tragic depiction that is. False prophets, false promises, and yes, false premises. False premises produce false peace. A premise is a proposition upon which an argument is based or from which a conclusion is drawn. You begin with a false premise and you will end with a false conclusion. For example, God is good. Well, that's a good premise, isn't it? You can even begin with a good premise and wind up with a false conclusion if all of your other premises are not valid, as with the first. God is good. That's good. That's right. God is good. Now listen to this premise, though, along with it. Condemning people to hell is bad. Therefore, conclusion, God cannot condemn people to hell. That one falls apart completely, doesn't it? The major premise is perfectly valid. God is good, condemning people to hell is bad, that's where it goes wrong, therefore God cannot condemn people to hell. God can and does, but in reality people condemn themselves to hell by rebelling against God's will. You see the minor premise in that syllogism is false and that falsifies the conclusion you know, back in the New Testament times, there were those who could cast out demons and perform other signs as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit that was necessary then, which is not necessary now. But if they concluded that God approved of them completely because they had that power from God, then their conclusion was based upon a upon a false premise. The signs were to confirm the Word of God, but those signs that people could perform did not affect the character of those who Perform them. Remember what Paul wrote in the great chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, miraculous faith, here's the context, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And listen to this. As he goes on, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. The ability to do those miraculous signs that were necessary in the infancy of the church, not necessary now because we have this, the ability to do those signs did not necessarily mean that one who did them was approved by God. He had to still live the Christian life. Well, we talk about false premises. What are the most prevalent false premises in religion today that lead to a false peace? There's the false premise that faith alone saves. There's the false premise that the church is not essential. There's the false premise that sincerity alone saves. There's the false premise that the Bible means whatever you want it to mean to you and it'll mean whatever I want it to mean to me. And all of those false premises lead to false practices which also produce a false peace because people are involved in those practices and they're dedicated to those practices but they've all been entered into on false premises and promises made by false prophets and so now their practices they feel so good about are contrary to the will of God. A proper practice is necessary to produce a proper peace. And all of it gets back to sweet loving obedience to the prince of peace. This morning is the peace, is the peace of God about which we've studied briefly this morning. Is it ruling as an umpire, as it were, in your heart? It can, and it should if we are growing in that beautiful, beautiful peace as we should. And when we mature by applying ourselves to the study of the Word of God and living faithfully the Christian life, when we mature to the point that that peace is that umpire, Oh, what a life, oh, what a life is had and enjoyed by the one who is ruled by that peace. Doesn't mean that turmoil won't come, doesn't mean that trials will not enter our lives, doesn't mean that sorrows will not befall us. We all know they will and they do and they have and they will continue to as we continue to live. But that peace can keep everything under control to the extent that we can sorrow when it's time to sorrow but without becoming despondent to the point of despair and giving up because the peace that surpasses all understanding is guarding our hearts and our minds as the New Testament tells us it can and should and will if we will submit our lives to the Prince of Peace. Have you done that? By a belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Prince of Peace. By repenting of your sins completely, changing your mind about where you are and determining to be elsewhere, that is in Christ, in peace with God. And have you confessed sweetly that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And have you been buried with your Lord in baptism as you must do, for the forgiveness of sins in order to rise from that watery grave with that peace flowing beautifully and abundantly over the soul that has rendered sweet obedience to the will of the Prince of Peace. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So said the Prince of Peace. To have that peace, we must obey as he has told us. And if you have, but you are among those who have turned their back upon that peace and you no longer enjoy that peace, not validly based upon knowing that you are walking in the light as God is in the light, we plead with you to come home to the Prince of Peace and to enjoy once again the peace and the joy that once characterized your life. And for all others who need no repentance, may we never lose sight of the fact that the New Testament Christian never stops growing in grace and in peace and in ten other beautiful qualities about which, Lord willing, we will speak before this series ends. If you need to come this morning, responding to the Lord's invitation, we plead with you to do so now as we stand to sing.